You are listening to Faith and Reason 360. We'd like to welcome everyone back to our fourth and final podcast featuring Father Richard Rohr. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to the last three episodes of this podcast, we encourage you to go back and do that. I promise you this one will make a lot more sense if you do. Mm -hmm. In this four-part series, we have been using audio of Father Richard Rohr from one of Faith and Reason's seminars where Richard describes what he calls the nine stages of spiritual development. I am Ann Phelps. And I am Devo Dykes. How are you doing today, Devo? It's oh, good to be back with you. Thank you, Ann. David and I went to Pennsylvania. Hmm. Oh, it was so great. We drove. Yeah. Oh, how far is that? Oh, well, it was a long way. It took us... For well, those who don't good. know, we are in Jackson, Mississippi, so yeah. <laughs> it's not next door. <laughs> well, it, we, uh, we pushed ourselves and drove uh, to York, Pennsylvania. It took us two days. Mm-hmm. Coming back, we took three. Wow, um, that's kind of nice. It was, it was beautiful. It was so pretty. Um, a little uh, disappointed that the leaves weren't turning quite mm-hmm. as I had expected, but I heard it's because of global warming. Well, that I believe. That I'm sure it's getting later and later. But I'm excited. I want to tell you why Yes. Uh, David and I drove to York, Pennsylvania. I have a dear sweet, she's like a daughter to me, she happens to be the illustrator for my children's books, oh, yes. my Stellarella books. Yes, if y'all haven't had a chance, William, my children, William and Abigail, love their Stellarella picture books, uh, so definitely check those out if you haven't had a chance. Well, you know I haven't spoken about my Stellarella mm-hmm. books, but uh, they can uh, contact us at Faith and Reason, Absolutely. and I'm happy to share information about them. They're very progressive, so they're. Uh, we yes. say that they're for progressive little thinkers. That's right, right. So, yes. but it anyway. makes William want to go to the market every day, even though it's not Saturday. So. <laughs> That's true. Well, um, my um, illustrator, uh, she just had a baby girl. Oh, that's exciting. But what's even more exciting about my trip to York, Pennsylvania, is that my illustrator, Christina, who is married to a rabbi, mm. she invited or honored me. Uh, by inviting me to be the godmother mm. to their Jewish daughter. Oh, wow. I know. I what Here I am, moment. ordained <laughs> in the Episcopal Church, and I looked at her with such surprise, and mm. I thought, well, that makes so much sense cool. for someone like uh, Christina and Marshall cool. that, you know, they would take this Protestant, Absolutely. so to speak, and uh, invite me to be a part of this beautiful child's life what a beautiful testament to the very kind of beloved community that we strive for here at faith and reason yes yes all are welcome and the goal is not to be the same but to embrace all that difference and it was my first naming service oh wow i bet that was amazing it was just amazing and of course uh Mm -hmm. her dad um officiated Mm -hmm. since he is a rabbi and chanted and it was just one of the Mm -hmm. most beautiful engaging yeah Uh, experiences of my life. Very cool. Oh, well, I'm so glad that you are back and have that wonderful experience under your belt as we jump into Richard Rohr's uh, nine stages of spiritual development. And as we've talked about, each of these stages uh, doesn't abandon the stages that have come before, but in fact, uh, we always have all of the stages that we grew out of. So it's not um, that you leave one for the next. It's not like elementary school where you go to the next grade. But in fact, we live in all of these different stages all at once. But as we we grow, we become more able to go deeper into our own spirituality. Um, So we will be revisiting uh, stages five and six, which is what we looked at in our last episode. And in short, stage five is uh, when we work with our shadows. Yes. Self, our shadow shadow work. Right. So facing our own issues. it's Limits, all weaknesses. Of, exactly. So uh, we do some grief work. Mm-hmm. It's time to weep, weeping time. Um, and then we move. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard stage to be in. Um, and then we move into yet another very difficult stage, yeah. which is stage six, where you learn um, not only your own weaknesses and flaws, but your inability to uh, transcend them, that you cannot do it on your own. Um, and this sort of dark night of the soul, realizing that you uh, – cannot, uh, for example, love someone who doesn't embody love uh, on your own steam. Uh, So you let go in stage six of your performative nature um, and let go of that and realize that you, you at your core are not just the work that you can do, but you are um, 
there's a deeper self in there somewhere, which starts to move us towards stage seven. seven let's right. hear what Father Richard has to say about stage seven. In stage seven, quite simply, I'll say it this way. I am much more than I thought I was. <laughs> this is when you move into the more abundant life, where you really realize uh, you're in touch with transformative power, life, and life more abundantly. Not religion and religion more abundantly. Life and life more abundantly. You can still honor and love religion because it got you started and it sent you on this path. But you know by stage seven that religion of itself is simply the finger pointing to the moon, but it's not the moon. <laughs> it's not the experience of union itself. It's the container. It's not of itself the contents. Or to use Jesus' language, it's the wine skin, but it's not the wine. And in my experience, eight out of ten people substitute the container for the contents, the wine skins for the wine. And of course, if you've spent 40, 50 years needing to prove that my wine skin's the only one holy Catholic apostolic wine skin, I or my country is the best and the only one that God shed his grace on thee, uh, if you believe that, it's pretty hard for the defended ego to let go of that. That, that there's not a whit of difference between the people south of the border and the people north of the border. Uh, they're all God's people. They all came from the same source. And you know what? That's the source I'm plugged into now. And so this is true Catholicity, Catholicity with a small c which uh, Jimmy Breslin described years ago as, here comes everybody. <laughs> that's why we don't want it. Of course, that's why we don't want it. As one of the saints said, you know, it's not that God is going to exclude anybody from heaven. Some of you are just going to peek through the gates and see there's black people over there and there's Catholics over there and say, well, this is not my group. Uh, <laughs> it's not my group. I'm going to go where there's nice white Lutherans, you know, from, preferably from Texas. You know? Father Rohr talks about the death of the false self mm -hmm. and um, birth of the true self. Absolutely. And so uh, I find that he spends a lot of time um, speaking about life, uh, living life more abundantly. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, not unlike stage six, this is a really difficult stage. Absolutely. You have to shed some of the uh, identity markers that you've so carefully crafted throughout the course of your life to become who you are and sort of say, I'm not all of those things. They're just sort of window dressing, and that's even part of stage six. But then you begin to recognize that there is this true self in there somewhere that no matter what you do is is loved by God. And... Um, and the thing is, it's not just that you have that, but it's that everyone else does too. So your sense of competition and superiority have to be shed in order to engage that true self. Um, that all people, no matter what they're like, whether they're like you or not, also are loved by God in that exact same way. Well, and you, he also um, indicates that this is, when you're in this kind of space, that it's almost like you're in a, a void, mm -hmm. that there's a space of uh, emptiness, like mm -hmm. a void, that, that you're in this darkness. Yeah, it's hard because there's so little content. It's hard to grasp onto anything. And so I'm sure it, it kind of can feel like a free floating experience where you're constantly looking for that contact with God because it's the sort of one true thing that you know. Um, but as we've said before, you take all of these other stages with you. And so, you know, when you're walking through the grocery store or, you know, flossing your teeth, uh, <clears throat> you're not necessarily encountering God in those moments in the way that you're craving at this phase. Um, but you are still having to do the basics of life. Um, but what I think is encouraging and exciting about stage, stage seven is that, um, you know, it's not just Episcopalians achieve it or atheists achieve it or Mississippians achieve it. It's that all of us can have that. And those who have tasted it, you can recognize one another in that abundance, mm -hmm. right? You can sit with someone who has a completely different belief system, a completely different set of life experiences, a, a completely different socioeconomic status than you. And you see that love in one another. And so you, you tend to encounter it maybe not in 
your own little religious or political enclave, but in unexpected places where where you will you will meet another person who is on that journey and embodies that love, and you can take that time to dwell in that space together. That's it. How refreshing. Well, and he points out that religion is the container, mm-hmm. and that was the first time I'd really heard anyone yeah. uh, of someone of his monastic state yeah. to actually speak. And he's Roman Catholic. Right. And so here he points out that religion, mm-hmm. you know, it's the finger pointing at the moon, but it's not the moon. Right. And so in right. other words, what I heard him saying was that religion truly is just that outer shell, Absolutely. but that it is the means by which we uh, walk uh, the path yes. or um, move down the highway. But it's not... You're not, it's not the religion that you're um, going to experience in stage seven. It's, that's just a mechanism. Uh, But that the, that, that, that is the uh, outer covering, but all of that begins to fall away and dissolve itself. And so the religion itself Mm -hmm. is not the focus. I've heard people in this stage say, um, I, I don't mean to diagnose people, but I've heard a phrase that sounds like this stage say, um, that sometimes they had to stop going to church because it made it too hard to encounter Jesus. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and if the church is doing that in your life, then of course, step away, right? The church's goal should be to facilitate that encounter with tremendous compassion and unconditional love of neighbor. And and if the church is making it too hard to do that, the people in stage seven aren't afraid to walk away from that right? and live a life that is... And so, therefore, may look very similar to stage four, right? Maybe it look like a very hyper-individualistic, right. spiritualist space at times. But my suspicion is that person in stage seven can sort of go between these worlds um, and find meaning in, in the religious institution, in the yoga retreat, in the one-on-one encounter with someone who's deeply spiritual of another religion or no religion at all. Well, and more and more, we begin to see that we are all God's people. I think mm-hmm. Richard points that out mm-hmm. and that uh, we are not uh, Christian uh, God's people and that Absolutely. we are chosen or we're not Jewish and right. that thus we are chosen. But we are all God's people. Yes. And so because God is within each and every one of us, no matter what tradition we're from, whether we're even practicing any particular religious tradition at all. Exactly. Well, let's hear what else he has to say about stage seven. Stage seven is when you begin to experience the true self. I am who I am in God. My deepest me is God. It's the death of the false self, at least in enough moments. It's not 24 hours a day, but you've had glimpses of the true self, of who you are in God and who God is in you. This is when you move to to the more abundant life, when you start having an access of not scarcity but abundance. You know you have a lot to call upon, a lot to enjoy, to experience. But I must warn you that in the early stages of stage seven, it feels often like a void. Not a painful void, but just an emptiness. Why? Because you're in unfamiliar terrain. (laughs) I've never lived out of my true self. And I'm so patterned in defending myself and and, uh, yelling back and all of that. You almost don't know how to yell, not yell back. But you're learning. You're learning real quick that that doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, because he gives me the finger, I give him the finger back. You know, I, I can't do that, but I'm still tempted to. Do you understand? There, there's enough of the, the false self still ingrained. You're habituated to the false self. You're habituated. You're patterned to oppositional thinking, uh, fear thinking. And so here's where most people find the generic sermon on Sunday usually doesn't help them. You need a spiritual director. You need someone who's at least one step beyond you. And, of course, when you're at stage seven, there aren't many. Who do you ask? When most people are back in stage two, three, even a lot of priests and bishops. And I'm not trying to say that in a cruel way, but it's obvious that you can be an ordained minister of the church and still commonly be in stages two or three. 
There's been no inner experience of God or grace. If there had been, you wouldn't be so dualistic in your thinking. So either or. You know, only Catholics in good standing may come to this table. I mean, did Jesus change his mind after the resurrection? (laughs) Before the resurrection. (laughs) I mean, I'm not trying to be a rebel or an iconoclast or a heretic. It's very clear that what the scribes and Pharisees hate him for is who he ate with and not washing his hands. And before he ate and inviting women into a male symposium and not eating the right food at the right time with the right people. In Luke's gospel, I think there's nine examples of it. Every time Jesus eats, he's doing it wrong. (laughs) And it's usually because he's eating with sinners. And they accuse him of that in those very words. He eats with sinners. But I want you to know, Jesus did change his mind after the resurrection. He no longer eats with sinners, all right? (laughs) He had a policy before, but now he's decided only, only to eat with Roman Catholics in good standing who have had their first marriage annulled and are not gay, all right? So it's interesting, I've mentioned before that I've been TAing an online course through the Center for Action and Contemplation, and the course is on, on Richard Rohr's book, The Immortal Diamond. And the main topic of this, this book is um, the transition from the false self into the true self and how those two parts of the self are in relationship always. Um, and so if, if readers want to know more about that in particular, um, I highly recommend that that book. Um, and that's what was really the name he, of it again? Immortal Diamond. The Immortal Diamond. Um, and it's, you know, he's talking about a lot of it in this book, this this um, transition into the true self where you're not really worried about being right or being pure. Um, and that's what I'm hearing him talk about in this clip is that, you know, Jesus was condemned for throwing away all those purity codes and saying, I don't, the rules aren't keeping me healthy and safe. They're, they don't matter they are, in fact, keeping me from loving people. And so it's, um, you're just not afraid in stage seven. No. You're not afraid. And he wasn't afraid to eat with mm-hmm. sinners. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, uh, you sort of lose track of, of not just those tribal identity markers, but you're just not afraid of, of losing track of that. You're not afraid of, of being judged. And you move from a space, I my husband, who is a political theorist, he and I talk a lot about the, the tension between purity and effectiveness. And you no longer fear losing your purity. You're not afraid who you work with. You're not afraid what quote-unquote compromises you're making because you know that as long as it's in the name of love, there's nothing nothing to worry about, right? As long as you're not hurting someone, um, as long as you're able to, to move in the direction that God is calling you to move, then you're no longer really worried about breaking the rules because the rules, if they're not pointing you to God anymore, don't matter. Well, and it's um, it's a, just a much larger step. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, again, you you bring all of the stages with you. And so, I don't know, stage two or stage three where you're, you know, you're worried about uh, what people are going to think. Uh, am I wearing the right, right. clothes? Right. Uh, but in this one, it's kind of like, oh, mother, may I? It's mm-hmm. that gigantic Absolutely. step. Absolutely. That you're, be, you've become so aware. You've mm-hmm. done such... Uh, self-examination, yeah. mm-hmm. you've worked on your shadow side, you oh, yeah. have wept, mm-hmm. you have allowed yourself to be vulnerable, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you're here at this mm-hmm. stage seven where, um, y- you know, it just doesn't, it's not weighty, it doesn't yeah. weigh on you. Yeah, yeah, it's another of the more liberating stages. And it's almost like it's not an effort. Mm-hmm. It's just not present yeah. in you. Yeah. And so therefore you're not afraid to approach Jesus directly as the gospel stories tell us over and over again, but we just don't always have ears to hear. Approach Jesus and say, heal me. I need you. And you don't feel the need to go through the motions of this or that. You, you can just, you can get there. Um, let's hear what he has to say about that. The only prerequisite for the touch of Jesus is desire. Desire. That's all. And don't you believe me, if you think I'm a heretic, you go home today and do some scripture study. You go to every single healing story of Jesus, and the only prerequisite is a humble, little, broken, powerless soul 
sitting by the side of the road, it says, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I can move with that, Jesus goes. Because the head space is open, the heart space is open, and they're living in the pain of their own body. They're standing in faith. And he'll tell them, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. Your faith has saved you. I didn't hear them recite the Nicene Creed, did you? He asked them if they could repeat the Nicene Creed. All they did was heart space open, head space open, standing in the pain and the truth of the moment, and the heart cries out to God, and God moves in Jesus. That's good stuff. But that can only be understood by people at least at stage seven. Living in the pain of your own body. Mm. Um, Father Roar says, you know, that, that they're just standing in the pain. Mm-hmm. And um, at my age, there has been uh, journeys or chapters mm-hmm. uh, in my life where uh, I have... Um, resisted yeah. that uh, standing in that pain mm-hmm. and I was determined to be in control of it. Yeah. I was determined not to allow myself to feel that deeply, oh, yeah. uh, that I was going to protect myself, mm-hmm. guard myself mm-hmm. uh, against those that level of pain. And mm-hmm. I find now that looking back on that, mm-hmm. that um, taking that position, posturing mm-hmm. myself in such a way that 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 resistance mm-hmm. to that experience, uh, it was going to have its way with me regardless. Right, right. And, but the resistance mm-hmm. was the damaging, yeah, that's uh, where the most damaging caused. to me. Yeah. Um, because it not only was damaging uh, emotionally mm-hmm. or psychologically, physically, literally, oh, yeah, sure. it was damaging. Yeah. It makes me think, I mean, there are so many physical metaphors that we encounter in the world. I think as someone who, who has two, you know, a, a baby and a three-year-old, I think about the metaphor of of childbirth, right? So uh, many of my friends have had home births even, unmedicated births, and and really done the work to be able to allow their bodies to feel that pain and stand in that pain, which is so admirable. I am not one of them. Give me an epidural (laughs) right now. I do not have the stamina. And perhaps I'm not at stage seven yet, and I am okay with that. But I need that pain relief. But but spiritually, right, I I can more relate to, to that, to the need to sit with that fear and say, if I give up the belief that 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 saying this thing or reading this text literally or doing this ritual can save me, then what saves me? And that very descent, that very fall through hell that is sort of also a metaphor for it is, you know, Dante's Inferno. You descend through hell first um, and come out. You don't go back up. You come out the other side. And and that's what what crucifixion and resurrection symbolize too, right? This going through death. And and Father Richard says in this series, this is not a, a something you achieve. This is not like grades of elementary school. These are not stair steps. You collapse through through these stages right. and fall down deeper into the next one. It feels like failure. It feels like pain. It is so difficult to sit in these spaces and come to terms with them, but but that's what we must do. And the heart cries out mm-hmm. to God and God moves. Mm-hmm. I loved it when Richard said that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move into the next clip. Great. So you see why, why the emerging church has emerged so slowly. <laughs> Uh, you just can't get what you can't get. If you haven't walked the journey, it doesn't make any sense to you. This is why most people are killed by their own group. Most prophets are destroyed by other Jews. Because when people keep moving inside of your own system, you look like a heretic. You look like a sinner, a prostitute, a drunkard, or a tax collector. We want you to all be dull normal like we are, you know? And just stay at dull normal. We don't want to hear any talk about racism, sexism, greed, or or warmongering. We're happy with our American wars. Our American wars are keeping us safe, says stage one person, right? And anybody who even shakes a hand with, with people from other nations is dangerous to stage one people. And they are. You can't tell him he's wrong. He's really scared of him. What we got to do is raise up people who know how to be people. And by and large, the way you raise them up is through great love and great suffering. If they resist all love 
and never fall in love and the, the helplessness that comes with it, the powerlessness that comes with falling in love with anything because you've given another power over you. If you've never been out of control by suffering, you will not move beyond stage one and two. You'll just believe doctrines and dogmas. I appreciate how in this this portion he sort of revisits some of the earlier stages, right? What does this look like from stage seven? From stage seven, you can uh, see new liberating truths, but but very few people are going to have the ears to hear them. And, and so you get the prophet figure, right? One that loves the institution that it's in, but is able to see beyond it and and wants to help it grow, but ultimately often gets killed by its own people, by her, his own people. Well, and he also talks about um, we've got to raise uh, mm-hmm. people um, to know mm-hmm. uh, how to be people. Well, I, I was thinking, okay, how do you raise people to know how to be people when people <laughs> think that they're people? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, unless It's shocking. You're... This is confusing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and unless you're actually doing this kind of work or you're exposing mm-hmm. yourself to something like the nine stages of spiritual mm-hmm. development, then you just move along right. uh, in life and yeah. you think you're a perfectly normal person, mm-hmm. uh, having your judgments, mm-hmm. uh, being resistant to even acknowledging the suffering or the needs of others Um, so this is a real challenge I think this is where our communities whether they're communities of faith or whether you're involved in some other type of community that you've created absolutely um, yeah it doesn't have to be a religious institution at all no but it is important that that we do uh, allow ourselves to grow and to become more aware, to invite this kind of information like Father Wars mm-hmm. presenting mm-hmm. Uh, so that we can have this opportunity Absolutely. to, as he says, how to be, learn how to be people. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because as you get up into these stages or down into these stages, as the case may, de- may be, it's becomes more and more difficult to articulate. Yeah. Um, so I will hand it back over to him because he is the best at Let's articulating it. it. Let's do it. Have you ever been that where I don't have an answer? I'm not sure I'm right, but I'm still okay. Someone else is holding me. I'm not doing the holding anymore. Uh, someone else is knowing through me. I don't know. I can't figure this out, who is right here, but uh, I know that it's okay and we can work with it and live with it. You don't need to split back into dualistic thinking. In luminous darkness, you let the darkness and the light coexist in the moment. And you move, move from judgment to gentle, compassionate discernment. People don't talk with cliches anymore, but they talk with a kind of calmness and freedom, a kind of subtlety of emotional life, a subtlety of intellectual life. There's plenty of room for gray, which means there's plenty of room for compassion, for understanding, for forgiveness. I would say most of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is not understandable until you're at least at stage five, six, or seven. It begins to be understandable. How happy are the poor of heart, or the poor in spirit. That doesn't make any sense when you're trying to take control in stage two or three. Happy are those who weep. Happy are those who do justice. Jesus is a level nine person, largely interpreted by a tradition that's been in love with level two and three. (laughs) And so it doesn't know how to point people there. It doesn't know how to lead people there. You can only lead people as far as you yourself have gone. And surprise of surprises, some of the people who go the distance are what Jesus calls the little ones, the least of the brothers and sisters. He says it again and again. It's pretty hard to miss it. The last are going to be first and the first are going to be last. Sometimes it's the drunkards and the prostitutes and the tax collectors who get there first because they've learned to give up control. Do you see? They know they're not right. So they can't hold on to the righteousness trip that we white guys can as long as we can because we're in charge of the culture. We're in control. So uh, the more successful you are in whatever system you're a part of, the more impervious you are to transformation. So here in stage eight, you really have to sit in that that ambiguity. Um, it's a 
whatever the opposite of certainty is, um, which makes it so hard for people whose job it is to be certain and to, to look down on the rest of the world from the top to ever, ever encounter this phase. And, and honestly, some of the aspects of this phase, I'm thinking, I don't know if I've ever been here either, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's rare. It's rare for people to have even a moment of, of experiencing phase eight. Well, even listening to Father Ward describe mm-hmm. stage eight, um, I can uh, grasp a hold of some of these concepts. Mm-hmm. But again, practicing these. Oh, yes. Um, some of it, I mean, sitting with the ambiguity, I think, is something that we practice in some of the other stages as well. We, right. we practice that each time we enter into that liminal space and move, move into the next room, right, of this interior castle to use uh, St. Teresa's wonderful metaphor for it. But, um, you know, we, it is difficult that we, we just don't know the answers here and that you just sort of sit in an illuminated darkness as he, as he mentions, it's not light anymore, but the darkness is sort of alive and vibrant. Um, and it's okay. You're suddenly okay. okay yeah, because it's coexisting dark. with that light. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he talks about you move from judgment mm-hmm. to this gentle, compassionate mm-hmm. discernment. And that's a really tough one. Mm-hmm. Um, because especially if you feel like, and here we are regressing a little mm-hmm. bit, but, you know, again, we float and dance back but right. back and forth between all of these stages. Right. But when you feel as though you have been wronged mm-hmm. and... Um, genuinely wronged mm-hmm. so that it has caused great damage and mm-hmm. great heartache. Mm-hmm. Um, but then to move into this place of gentle, compassionate discernment, mm-hmm. uh, I can sort of imagine yeah. what that might be like. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm thinking, okay, well then, um, I don't bear the anguish yeah. of allowing that uh, experience to yeah. weigh on me yeah. so that the judgment diminishes mm-hmm. um, my, my sense of um, being uh, resent, resentful. It yeah. seems to diminish itself, maybe. Yeah. yeah, it's so difficult. I mean, it's so difficult to achieve any of these stages without experiencing great pain. No, you cannot. Um, I believe you cannot. And so it's interesting because I look at this and I think about, you know, the, the terrible tragedies that allow people to enter into this space. And I think, not worth it. Uh, Don't want it. Well, <laughs> right? it's, nobody it's, wants it, but it happens. Exactly. And that's what's so complicated about this is it's not an aspirational thing. Mm-hmm. As he says in, in this the, the DVD series, he says, this isn't something we aspire toward, but it is something that does happen. And it is something that healthy spiritual people allow to inform them and can bring them closer to God than otherwise they might have possibly been. And, and that is such a complicated tension. I think it's also worth mentioning that, you know, this at this very ethereal level, this illuminated darkness, I don't think anybody lives all day every day from that space. Oh, I don't either. You can't. You certainly can't raise children from that space. No. <laughs> you, you certainly can't, you know, take care of anyone from that space. Oh. And so that's um, a really hard space to live in. And, and he says in much of his own writing that he has an edge on a lot of us because he is living a monastic lifestyle. He lives in a hermitage. He has time every day for contemplation and yes. prayer that most of us are, you know, at least for me, I'm tying shoes and carting to daycare. So um, <laughs> making dinner, that kind of thing. Right. So it's, you know, it, it is, um, that's one of the big challenges. And I I loved how he dips back into um, uh, most of the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. And he talks about happy are those who weep. And, you know, that really, now there's another level of of uh, understanding and another mm-hmm. invitation into uh what the the great depth of the meaning of those mm-hmm. of that sermon mm-hmm. a, a fresh new way to read it definitely definitely you know that sermon on the mount uh if taken he says early on in this series that we have ears to hear a message at any of these stages and we will make it accurate to the stage that we're in no matter what that is and so you know, the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the Poor. If you hear that in stage four, you might think, I need to go out and become poor. 
Um, <laughs> one of my, my former roommates tells a story about her first date with her now husband, and she was very much living in a stage four place. They were in college, and on their first date, he said, you know, he was going to be a wealthy neuroscientist, and she said, well, I just want to be poor someday. And they now <laughs> laugh about that um, because that is a very – an earlier oh. stage of spiritual development, understanding of this blessed are the poor. Yes. Um, the goal isn't to – be poor. The romanticization of poverty is one of the great tragedies of our time and, and of t- left-leaning people. Um, but it is, uh, there is still that blessing that you can achieve if you have a impoverishing experience and tragedy in your life. Um, poverty being one of the main ones you can encounter. Um, and so I think that that, that description of state, state, stage eight and helping root it in the Sermon on the Mount is very helpful. Um, so let's hear what else he has to say about stage eight. Stage eight is I and the Father are one. Or in terms of what Joan told us so well last night, you can equally well say I and the Mother are one. That's the verse, John 20, 30. Here is when you at least have very real and sometimes sustained sense of your conscious unity with God. All else is seen as relative and passing, and and in some ways, it doesn't matter. You have now knocked upon the hard bottom of reality. You've experienced the absolute. The veil has parted, and God has gotten in, and you've gotten out, and you realize my deepest me is God. One knows God in oneself, henceforth, and one knows oneself in God. This is the goal of the mystics. This is the goal of the spiritual journey. We call it in Catholic theology the unitive way. There was the purgative way, purgation, the illuminative way where you you gradually became enlightened, and the last stage was the unitive way where you lived in conscious union with God. Not usually 24 hours a day, but enough to know that this is the really real. And then something even more wonderful, that you recognize uh, it wasn't my goodness that got me here. It wasn't my morality that got me here. It wasn't my denominational belief system that got me here. In fact, I don't know how I got here. God got me here, is all the saint will say. Uh, and, and you look backwards at your, your life, and you realize someone else made it happen. And that's when you fall in love with God. And you recognize that you did not choose God. God chose you and was working in secret, hidden much of your life, to lead you to this experience of union. Everything is relative most of my adult life, I've heard that phrase. Everything mm. is relative. So, you know, if you're living at a lower rung, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, it's all relative. Okay, so I only have one home. Mm-hmm. It's relative. Yeah. You know, I have uh, three cars. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. it's kind of relative. Yeah, am I, and, am I wealthy compared to the people I went to graduate school with? No. But am I wealthy compared to the people I live in this town with? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's very, you know, to understand that everything is relative, um, knocked on the hard rock of reality. Mm-hmm. But I really am especially interested, and I like to close my eyes and really kind of live in this uh, phrase where he says, God has gotten in and you've gotten out. Mm-hmm. So I, I close my eyes and I think, okay, um, open head, open heart, mm-hmm. uh, open my viscera, mm-hmm. uh, inviting God into this mm-hmm. void, into this space. And then I kind of have to wiggle around and shovel, shovel, yeah. you know, stuff around. And yeah. uh, then, and then I got to push myself out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it's a lot of work. Oh, it's so, so complicated. I mean, he, he, I love the example he gives, you know, the Eucharist and how that can be a symbol of, you know, it can be a symbol of lots of things and some of them good and some of them not so good, but it can be a beautiful symbol of, of God being truly in us. 
that's what it means. That's to great. The, the true presence doesn't necessarily that bread turns into flesh on a molecular level, but that God is in us and we are in God. We are one and the same. And that is so hard to wrap our minds around. And I think that very few of us ever get there. And in the Christian tradition, mm-hmm. those who participate in the Eucharist, mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're you're given the wafer, mm-hmm. you're offered the cup, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the body of Christ, mm-hmm. the bread of heaven, and you take this in, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so it becomes a part of who you are, mm-hmm. and so really you are when you really uh, take that moment yeah. to imagine, I am am absolutely god within there exists this presence it really you know it makes me think back to stage six and that void we talked about that desire to be with god that can sort of plague people in stage six that they feel like they never really have enough of that um and it's because there isn't quite that union achieved yet that sense that god is always there and not just in a pedantic light way but in a really hard to comprehend and, and sit with way and um it makes me think about one of the things he says in his book, Immortal Diamond, that I referenced earlier, that our in that stage six, and he's not using the stage six language in this book, but in that space of that longing for God, that longing for encounter with the divine, that's actually God's longing for us inside of us. And that, I think, was a really powerful phrase mm. to help me understand, at least cerebrally, that union. I'm not claiming that I understand right. it in right. a full way right. um, or that I've achieved any kind of spiritual level eight. But but that notion at least resonates with me. I'm able to grasp that, that that yearning to, to encounter God inside me is also God's yearning to encounter me. Um, I love listening to him mm-hmm. speak about stage eight. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I will have to listen to that many, many, many yes. times. Mm-hmm. But the idea of just um, just teasing mm-hmm. oneself with the notion of the possibility mm-hmm. of being in that space, Absolutely. in that stage. And that's not even the last one. I that know. That brings us to stage nine. Let's hear what he has to say about it, if it can even be articulated. <laughs> and then, surprise of surprises, none of you expected stage nine to be this. But look at what stage nine is. It's just me. I am who I am, naked underneath my clothes, warts and all. This is what we call in men's work the holy fool. It's enough to be human, no window dressing necessary, no badges, no uh, costumes, no titles are necessary. Oh, you can wear them, but you don't need them anymore. You don't need them at all. Now you know that religion is just a finger pointing to the moon, but it's not the moon itself. No need at stage nine to appear to be anything but who you really are. At this point, you're fully detached from your own self-image, and you're living instead in God's image of you, who sees you much better than you can see yourself and loves it anyway. You're caught in the gaze, and you learn to return the gaze. Meister Eckhart said, the eyes with which we look back at God are the very same eyes by which God first looked at us. All we do is complete the circuit. That's all. We don't know where to look for to see God. We let God look at us, as Mary says in her Magnificat, in our lowliness, in our littleness, in our unworthiness. And as she says so perfectly there, this God lifts her up. You will experience that being lifted up, but you'll know, and I'm going to say it intentionally shocking, you'll know that it has almost nothing to do with you. (laughs) It was done unto you. You did not merit it by any performance principle whatsoever. Earlier, Father Roar reminded us that only Jesus is at stage nine. Yes, that is helpful. uh, with the possibility that maybe there's some monastics. That, right. There's you know, some, you know, prophet figures of old, some, um, you know, and arguably I think that um, people who live radically different experiences and existences outside of some of the structures of our life. I think of um, a friend of mine's daughter with Down syndrome 
might very likely live in stage nine. Oh, yeah. What um, a great thought. Yeah. She, she just exhibits a wisdom and joy that I don't know that we have the access to. Um, and so thinking through what that looks like, you know, I struggle as a real person uh, with real responsibilities about stage nine. I love what he says about the holy fool, no titles, no badges, right? These, we don't need a collar or military medals or things that prove where we've been, that we've achieved something. We, we just are who we are. A resume. Yes. Oh, a, my God. A resume is a great example of exactly what I'm about to say because without my resume, I also wouldn't have the ability to feed my children. Yeah. And so stage nine raises some really complicated questions about what we started with in this series, this embodied religion idea that – this can't just exist in the spiritual realm, but has to exist in the world. And so if this is a, a religion about, if Christianity is a religion about embodiment and tangible things, it's hard for me, I mean, with Jesus being obviously the example of what it looks like to be that um, holy fool who doesn't care about accolades and in fact em- embraces a cross, hmm. not a crown, Um we're the ones who thrust the crown upon this person. That's right. Um, what that looks like, because what Jesus did in embracing the cross would have been really tragic if he had children, right? Yeah. What do we do with the fact that we live in a world of responsibilities and needs and that without meeting those needs, um, we are creating more people who are more hurt and less likely to achieve any of these levels beyond level one and two right well i wonder if um for stage nine maybe the invitation is just um the opportunity to be aware Mm -hmm. that this is a phase or Mm -hmm. a stage maybe there's the opportunity for those of us maybe there are just milliseconds in Mm -hmm. our life where just flickering moments Mm -hmm. of uh dipping into this stage Mm -hmm. um but that it's something that we might long to. Maybe it's something that we can allow ourselves to. Uh, it's the it's the carrot dangling. Yeah. You know what a beautiful way yeah. to live one's life. Uh, the possibility of of achieving mm-hmm. that kind of peace, mm-hmm. that kind of non investment, and yeah. in anything other than the good. Right. You know, and while I'm not someone who espouses a a theology that looks toward the afterlife, it does make me wonder that in a life full of responsibilities and and the need to um, take care of one another, if the only way to truly achieve nine is actual death, right? The actual loss of the actual individual self as we know it. Very Um, interesting. I don't know what that means for the second after death, but, (laughs) but, but that that is sort of the full embodiment of these nine stages that we can all encounter. And, and of course that's not me saying we should all rush toward death in that way. That's not the goal at all. Um, as you say, I think there are these foretastes that we can encounter here, but it is, um, it's a very difficult, difficult idea to wrap our heads around and I think it is important for us to know that if you rush yourself toward these phases prematurely if I say okay fine I'm I'm done handing in resumes and getting jobs that Mm -hmm. you know pay the bills and doing my part to make my community better and voting I'm done being a part of all these and I'm locking myself in a tower and contemplating God all day that will hurt people namely my children and husband but when those people are then hurt by my absence, my lack of, of care to the tangible things in this world, um, then they become less likely to achieve these things. And so, yes, these systems of intergenerational poverty, these systems of injustice and oppression are not acceptable if they allow you to, you know, if, if that's your means for achieving level nine, then you've completely missed it. Well, and, and again, in, in the meantime, uh, one thing I do with my granddaughters, I try to, um, they live in Houston, and I try mm. to write them at least once a week mm. because I don't get to see them as often as uh, I would like to. But I try to uh, remind them, almost in every every mm-hmm. letter uh, that I send to them, um, what I do is um, every day I get up, and, and this, I think, is achievable. Mm-hmm. But And I also like to remind them at their early, uh, very young ages that I say to myself early in the day that today I am going to be my best self. Mm-hmm. 
Now, that's not necessarily I'm going to make it to a stage, I don't know, five right. or <laughs> six or seven, oh, and certainly right. not an I, but, but the idea that I can work towards and I can at least say it out loud because if I say it out loud, mm-hmm. then it is something that I can hold myself to mm-hmm. as the day moves on. Absolutely. And that's in every way. Yeah. I, I want to, I, today, mm-hmm. I will be my best mm-hmm. self. I think that is um, a good mantra and motto as we try to navigate these very complicated um, but also very simple uh, stages of spiritual development and think about what it means to live in a real embodied world um, as we are still trying to engage the Holy Spirit. Well, thank you, and yes. and thank you to our listening audience, and especially thank you, Father Richard War, for presenting us these nine stages of spiritual development. We hope you've enjoyed these past four series. And again, our Faith and Reason 360 podcast are free to our listeners. And so uh, you can certainly help us continue to provide these podcasts by providing us a small donation. You can also visit our website to explore other programs that we offer uh, at faithandreason.org. And again, this exploration of the nine stages of spiritual development is rooted in Father Richard Rohr and Sister Joan Chittister's Faith and Reason 360 seminar entitled The Human Spirit and the Times We Live In. And if you would like to visit that uh, and have that for your own to to look at more closely and hear more about what he has to say about these nine stages, uh, please visit the website faithandreason.org where you can buy these programs and have them at home. Again, thanks, Anne, and this program is produced by Faith and Reason, a program of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation. That if you are really in any kind of higher level of grace and transformation, you know what? You'll lose interest in this diagram, all right? Because you're not interested in measuring. All you know is you're in the hands of God. You didn't do it. And so to, oh yeah, she's a stage two person. I, <laughs> I can tell he's total, totally in stage three. You will gradually lose interest in pigeonholing other people, labeling other people, or even labeling yourself. All you find is this great compassion toward reality, that God has liberated and loved me in spite of myself, God's doing the same in other lives, each at their own pace, each in their own way. And as Rumi said so beautifully, there is a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. The stage nine person is patient with that. Well, so is the eight or the seven, for that matter. But let's pray for that holy compassion, that that patience. At that stage, issues like sexism, like racism, uh, clearly simply seems so infantile. It's like, why would anybody waste any time there? Nationalism, for that matter. That my country is a, is a whit of difference in the mind of God than any other country on this earth. A level uh, 7, 8, and 9 sees right through that and sees beyond that, but it is a seeing bigger than their own. They're being seen through. You, you, they write off in this way, that, that someone is doing the seeing for me. <laughs> I almost feel that, it, that it's not I, not I, but the Spirit that blows through me.